Sheryl Crow's appearance on The Late Show with David Letterman in 1994 should have been a dream come true. She had spent years grinding out a career as a musician, playing the beer-soaked bandstands of the American Midwest night after night, even after a collision with a waitress knocked out her two front teeth. She had moved to LA, she had been a backup singer for Michael Jackson, dealt with crippling depression, and had several demos rejected by record labels. But Crow had found her place in an odd band of misfit musicians that would meet each week to write songs and jam, and she named her debut hit album after them, The Tuesday Night Music Club. And now, she was on national television being validated for her hard work. She had made it. The elation wouldn't last. When she was asked by the host if the song she had performed, Leaving Las Vegas, was autobiographical, she said yes, even though the song was primarily written by her friend and Tuesday Music Club collaborator David Beowald. The rest of the group went berserk, accusing her of stealing their credit and pushing her from the group. She left both the club and the studio, striking out on her own. She was alone, angry, and still incredibly talented. So she began work on her next album, this time titled after the only person who deserved credit. Sheryl Crow's self-titled second album was released on September 24, 1996, and has since sold 3 million copies. It would win Best Rock Album at the Grammys, and has widely been seen as Sheryl Crow's magnum opus. But as luck would have it, Sheryl Crow wasn't the only person to release an album that day. As a matter of fact, she wasn't even the only person to release a second self-titled solo album. Susanna Hoffs of The Bangles also released her self-titled second studio album, which sold practically no copies, has very few if any reviews on it, and has, for all intents and purposes, been completely scrubbed off the internet. So they're both probably really good albums, right? Let's find out. Welcome to When Albums Collide. Welcome to the When Albums Collide podcast, Judd Boas with you, joined as ever by my co-host Pedro Duran. Pedro, how are things? I am great, Judd. How are you? I'm good. We did a little lockdown project, me and my housemates, where we like got a little bowl of um, lemons and limes in the backyard and we gave it to our neighbours to, to reach out, you know, in the spirit of fraternity. They left a gift for us and it's a vacuum sealed bag of mystery meat mm. and they didn't tell us what animal it is. They said they just smoked this in their backyard. Nice. Would you eat this? Am I supposed to eat this now? Uh, I would not eat that, but feel free. Um, I just, I, when you say mystery meat, I immediately think human meat <laughs> that they're trying to get rid of and then have you ingest. It's their previous neighbors or something, the last neighbors that crossed their exactly. path. Um, it's a warning sign. So I will post on the Instagram. I'll show you the, the mystery meat, but it's uh, a little bit terrifying, to be honest. But what's even more terrifying is the two albums we listened to this mm. week released on exactly the same day in 1996. And we need a bit of help with this one, mm. Pedro, because I'm unfamiliar with both of these albums. Uh, so you may have heard her on a Triple M Hobart. You may know her from her wonderful podcast, The Chain. We've got Britt Aylin on the line. Britt, how's things? Hello. Thanks for having me. All the way from across the Bass Strait, how are things in Tasmania? Pretty normal, I hear. Yeah, it's quite different to Melbourne. We're actually allowed outside our houses. <laughs> Wow. Weird. Bizarre. Oh, we haven't had COVID cases down here in months, so everything seems back to normal. And so it's kind of eerie watching what's going on on the mainland where it's so different to the life I'm experiencing down here. It's almost like watching a zombie movie from afar in the comfort of your own home. <laughs> exactly. Um, we're, doing, we're doing it tough. So I thought, um, you know, listening to some uplifting music might help. 
And maybe maybe I found Cheryl Crow a, a little bit uplifting. Britt, can you please tell us, what's your experience with Cheryl Crow and what's your experience with Susanna Hoffs? Not much on Susanna Hoffs, but Cheryl Crow, I loved this album. When I was a teenager, I was kind of obsessed with this album. It was a while after it came out, but I just sort of discovered it one day and listened to it a lot. I think when I was in year 10, I did a painting of the album cover, oh which I'm God. sure my parents are thrown out by now. Yeah, I just, I got really into it. I thought it was really deep. I thought it was really special and cool. And listening back now, I've realized it's not exactly <laughs> as good as I remember. How long has it been since you last listened to it? Probably about 15 years. Oh, good, good. That's perfect. That is perfect. Uh, and Susanna Hoff's The Bangles, nothing? You no, no real knowledge? Oh, well, I know The Bangles. Um, but no, I, I wasn't familiar with her solo stuff, but when I saw that both these albums came out on the same day, I mean, there are so many links that tie these two albums together. It's fantastic. Just the fact that they're both sophomore albums, self-titled with black and white cover photos. You can't write that. I mean, it's like, it's a Hollywood movie. These two, (laughs) these two titans of industry. Uh, Pedro, what do you know about Cheryl Crow? What do you know about Susanna Hoffs? I mean, with, with Cheryl, I mean, she's pretty big musician and my introduction to her involves this album it's the the massive song you know if it makes you happy i just remember back in the day just seeing it on mtv and 13 year old pedro duran being like wow that girl is talented and she's super good looking and i do like the video but after that i've never really dug in you know bought an album or took the time out to really listen to her with the exception of this week and then with uh suzanne susanna I mean, I just, <laughs> I just found out this week she was in the Bengals. So I was like, oh yeah, I know the Bengals. And then um, I started doing my research and I looked, I looked her up and my, my, my only thing I can say was like, man, she's aged beautifully. She's such an attractive person to, you know? So um, I'm really excited to um, review these albums of two beautiful women. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I don't want to offend um, year 10 Brit here. <laughs> But for me, Sheryl Crow is part of the holy trinity of what I would deem mum rock, where it's Alanis Morissette, Shania Twain, Sheryl Crow, the three crowned queens of a girl, is a woman is driving her kids to school and she's blasting that on the radio when she's on the, on the way to soccer practice or something. It's just something about the music. It's sort of safe. And but very nice to listen to, and a little bit boppy and a little bit uplifting, but with a bit of grungy parts. This is like prime mum rock for me. So I, I mentioned at the top of the show, Cheryl Crow went on the David Letterman show, and she really upset some of the bandmates she was playing with at the time, claiming that she wrote Leaving Las Vegas, a song that was actually written by David Beowald about his friend John O'Brien. I'm guessing, and I think I know the answer to this, that, that song in some way must be autobiographical. Is that correct? Uh, yes. They're watching this on TV and they both go berserk when she says this, even though she obviously didn't mean anything by it. She was nervous to be on, you know, primetime television. Uh, And a few weeks later, O'Brien would actually take his own life. Uh, His family's come out and said she had nothing to do with it. He had his own issues going on. But the band or the group that were playing together were never going to be the same. So she decided to strike out on her own and prove to all the doubters that were saying, well, maybe she didn't have that much to do with that first album. And maybe it was all other people doing the heavy lifting. She said, no, I'm going to do my own solo album. I'm going to prove everyone wrong. What does David Beowald, the guy that wrote Leaving Las Vegas, do at this time, though? He's working on an album with Susanna Hoffs. Yes, that's (laughs) right. He's working on the solo album with Susanna Hoffs. What are the odds of that? So it's almost like they're competing against each other. He's moved on to this new 
solo artist, female solo artist, trying to prove that he can make it as a musician, and she's working by herself on her solo album. You couldn't paint a better picture for it. But the bangles on Susanna Hoff's end sort of had the same thing. Tensions arose in the bangles when the media started to focus on Susanna as being the star of the group, even though all four members they wrote and sang, she got a lion's share of all the press because she was you know, lead vocalist. And then she was in a movie, and then there was a publicity campaign. The band really hated that she was the focal point, and they broke up in 89. Now we're at 96. She's trying to make this solo thing happen. Let's get into the album and take it track by track. start with Cheryl Crow's self-titled album. The first track is Maybe Angels. What did you think about this one, Britt? It's it's interesting. <laughs> you, because you said this, you should be very familiar with this, right? So so you, you turn it on, did it bring like a rush of memories back? What did you feel about it? Oh, it took me right back to my teenage years and... It is one of those songs that I remember being really deep. You know, she references Kurt Cobain and John Lennon and you know, dead people. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, I, I understand this. These are the deep musicians that I aspire to be. My sister, she says she knows Elvis. She knows Jesus, John Lennon, and Kobe, personally. Yeah, it's, I mean, I get the fine. feeling you didn't like it for some reason. It's fine. <laughs> There are better songs on the album. The song's basically about what believing conspiracies. That's what I kind of took from him. Um, I mean, she's like referencing lines about Roswell and, and, and things. I mean, I, I mean, I I I really enjoyed the heavy guitar uh, in the song, and I just felt like it gave the tune, you know, kind of a fat bluesy sound. And it, I mean, it goes well with her voice and particularly her particularly her singing style. So, uh, like I said, I never listened to this this album before. So I, I thought it was a fine introduction to the to to the album. As you were saying, Britt, there are better songs on on the album, but I thought it was a fine introduction compared to Susanna album, which I thought, yeah. <laughs> Beekeepers Blues, the first song on Susanna Hoff's uh, album. Look. We've been in lockdown, Brett, for so long since, you know, March, April, March. And it's been so long since I've been in like a Starbucks or a Gloria Jeans Mm -hmm. where they play music like this as as the background music. So that took me right back to being among people, being in a cafe uh, where they put in sort of white noise music and it sounds like Susanna Hoff's um, Beekeeper's Blues. Yeah, it just fades into the background. I listened to that song maybe three times and I cannot remember what it sounds like. You You couldn't hum a single bar of it. No, not at all. I find it really interesting, though, how Susanna Hoffs and Cheryl Crow both have really similar vocal qualities. Do you think so? Because I thought, like, I think Susanna Hoffs has a more iconic voice. I would say, like, she has a very like high pitched, overtly feminine, whereas Cheryl Crow can get a bit more down and dirty mm. with her vocals. But do you think they they sound similar? I think they've got similar tonality to their voices and a similar vocal range. But I don't think Susanna Hoffs is taking advantage of that, mm. whereas Cheryl Crow is. Yeah. Cheryl Crow is interesting because she's been always been like one of the boys, you know, in this Tuesday music club that she made the previous album with. It was just a bunch of guys and she was the only female influence. So she had to sort of fight for her for her place among that. Even moving to L.A. was part of the big dream of a small country girl from Missouri moves to the big city and tries to be famous. And she gets a gig being a backup singer for Michael Jackson, which is wild, by the way. 
anyway, in um, 1989. Um, so she's had this really wild career even before this point, but she's in her mid-30s, I think, by the time this album comes out. So she, I think she has a lot more grit to some of the, the singing rather than uh, as opposed to Susanna Hoffs. Is that just me? That's interesting because Susanna Hoffs came from a real punk background too. R- right, right. But I, I don't... Did you hear anything punk <laughs> on this album? Not on this album, no. No, but I, like, I can hear the quality in her voice though. She's still... She's got that huskiness. She's got that depth. It just doesn't come through quite as much. She sort of keeps it up in the sickly sweet register. Mm, yeah, definitely. Sickly sweet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cheryl, I mean, has a lot more variety on this album. Like I was mentioning, when maybe Angels, it's a little more bluesy, or another song like Home, where you get it to, has a different type of style, and she kind of changes with it. Whereas with Susanna, this, the whole, oh, man. I mean that, like, like I think she's, I think she's really talented, right? And there's song, there's a song that I was, I was, I was saying, oh wow, her voice sounds really, really good on this one, but. There's no variation on Susanna's album at all. I mean, her voice sounds great and stuff, but um, I found the album to be kind of a sleeper just the whole way through. Like, is like it does fade into the background a lot. I would say this for the first couple songs because um, Cheryl Crow, I believe the next song is a change for mm-hmm. "Do You Good." Yes. And this is the first appearance by Jeff Trott, who is a guitarist, and he co-wrote some of the songs on this album. Um, hey guys, you know what else Jeff Trott was doing in 1996? He was playing guitar for Susanna Hoffs on her album. Mm. <laughs> I shit you not. This is the LA music scene. It is so unbelievably incestuous. I don't understand. These are practically the same album. What did you think about this song, A Change Would Do You Good? Well, I, I read a really interesting fact about this one on Song Facts, where Jeff Trott said that the way they wrote the lyrics to this song was they put a bunch of ideas in a hat and drew them out randomly. That, that's how all great hits are made, right? By random <laughs> chance out of a hat. Yeah. But knowing that and then listening to the words, yeah, it was <laughs> yeah. clearly written from just random thoughts drawn out of a hat. You can do that, like, lyrically, if the music is just so great and it doesn't matter what you're singing, but I don't think the music's that great in this. It sort of all blends into the background. Didn't do it for me, this one. Oh, it's pretty catchy. Did it get you get you bopping along in your chair? <laughs> it got me bopping along quite a lot more than Susanna Hoff's entire album. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I like this song as well. I thought it was a good companion piece to the first one because it still kind of has that heavy guitar and bluesy sound because a lot of times you know coming from a first song or a second song the sound of an album can change dramatically as we go through with with uh, cheryl's album it does change like i said she kind of teeters with country and then she goes into you know that as you say the mom rock kind of sound and but these two tracks i thought they complemented each other well the lyrics are nonsensical it's almost like free association it's kind of like whatever but Fine first two tracks for me so far. So the, the the first track where I'm like, oh, okay, I can see why people would be into it is the next track on her album, Home. Because mm-hmm. this is, Home is the first track that is solely written by Sheryl Crow. Mm-hmm. You know, when she, she left that, that, that other group, a couple people came with her. They wanted to still write music with her, including Bill Bottrell, um, who he was upset, obviously, about what happened on Letterman. But he's like, we'd write really good songs together. Let's go to New Orleans together and let's write this new album. And they lasted like one or two days and they wrote three songs together and then they had a huge fight in the middle of the street and he's like, I'm leaving. And he left. So there is some of his influence around Bill Patrell and he's worked with Michael Jackson and Madonna and all this stuff. But 
the first song that Sheryl Crow wrote by herself, almost to prove, like, I can do this by myself, I'm an artist, is my favourite song so mm. far. I don't want any other influence. Just show me what Sheryl Crow is about. Uh, I was really into Home, actually. Interesting. I think I prefer the mum rock. <laughs> really? <laughs> Maybe that's the 30-something-year-old woman in me. <laughs> it's, just, it's just creeping out of your pores. Mm-hmm. You don't like, you don't like, did nothing, nothing happening with Home? Oh, I don't mind Home. I found her vocal style really interesting. It's so soft and you can hear every breath. She's very close to the microphone. She's not projecting at all. It's kind of like Billie Eilish. It was really, it was interesting listening to it so closely, you know, through headphones, which are much better quality than the ones I would have been using on my Discman back in school. It's good. It's definitely, it's far from my favorite track off the album though. Yeah, it's interesting that you said that you like this, Judd, because it, I, for me it was like, all right, this is where I can definitely see her country roots because I think nowadays Cheryl's doing a lot more country and has elements of mm. it. Like one of my favorite songs, Picture with Kid Rock with, with Cheryl Crow. I found your picture today. hear this song i can see where she gets inspiration like that she can she can do different genres really well but it was yeah it's interesting the the song is bittersweet the music is soft and pleasant and as you were saying with her low voice singing delivery i think it would make any fan of asmr really excited listening to the lyrics you know but as i was saying the song is bittersweet because the lyrics are such a downer you know as she's describing her disappointment in a life where she's settled down. You know, she has lyrics um, saying that I like to see the Riviera and slow dance underneath the stars. I like to watch the sun come up in a stranger's arms. You know, it's like, oh, that's such a bummer. Imagine your uh, your partner, your boyfriend, girlfriend, wife, or husband is just, just saying that to you. I mean, that's just uh, grounds for divorce there. So I do want to bring that up a little bit. Mm-hmm. I know this is jumping forward, but she has a, a hit song called If It Makes You Happy, which was a, a very popular song. Before she plays it at concerts, she would um, she would say at her concert, so I was thinking about getting married. Is anyone married here? And everyone would cheer. And then she says, uh, you know, my parents have been married 43 years and they really like each other. My boyfriend and I have been together for three years and we hate each other's guts. And everyone like cheers, which is... I guess cute to do at a thing, but if I was the boyfriend, I would be very uncomfortable that she's saying this in front of a crowd of people. <laughs> There's a heartbreak element to her music and stuff. Susanna Hoffs at this point, she's just gotten married to like a Hollywood producer. She's just had a baby the year before the, this album comes mm. out, the self-titled album. She's in like a really good place in her life. She's was in a really famous rock band in the 80s. She's already mega famous. She has a wonderful family. Whereas Cheryl Crow's not in that position in her life. Do you think that like adds to the music a little bit more? It adds a bit more edginess, whereas like Susanna's happy. She doesn't have to please anyone. Yeah, potentially. I, Cheryl Crow was dating Eric Clapton around this time, I'm pretty sure. Ooh, and he was really? like 19 years older than her. Mm. <laughs> Fiendishly addicted to cocaine, as we all know. <laughs> Which, you know, is always the grounds for a healthy relationship. But it, do you need to be a little bit miserable and sad to, I don't know, um, make really enjoyable music she's had really bad bouts of uh, depression and sleep paralysis and really like traumatic things in her life does that add to it do, do you think people can hear that they listen to both these albums one of them is sort of just boring and normal and another one has a bit of bit of grit to it well i think there's definitely more to relate to in sad songs than happy songs just in general also i think you know, artists can be happy and put out really good music as well you know um i'm trying i think of someone that's <laughs> 
<laughs> that's funny. Think, let me let me think of someone that's happy right now. Well, I, 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 who's really wholesome and happy? I mean, um, Vanilla Ice. He always seems pretty happy. Yeah, you know, he seems pretty pretty. <laughs> Did content, he put out good music so. though? Yeah, what are you talking about? He put out bangers. Um, that Gangnam Style guy always seemed he had a smile on his face a lot of the time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think of Pharrell Williams in the song Happy. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that is yeah. the, the happy yeah, song. Yeah, definitely. Susanna Hoffs, she's in, a, she's in a good place where she could write songs, maybe draw them out of a hat. Um, she can write songs that are just sort of a little bit whimsical too, like her song, which is... This is the closest I would get to saying a single, Enormous Wings. Is, that, is this the, the hit, quote-unquote? Mm. Originally written for an album that didn't happen in 1994, so this is another go at it. And it's based on a short story by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and there's references to his other short stories in this. You know, it's very artsy-fartsy. What did you think of Enormous Wings? Well, it's got that telephone filter over the intro. There once was a very old man who had enormous wings. Before it brings you into the full sound of the song, it's got a decent guitar tone. And she keeps like repeating that like he's, there's an old man with enormous wings over and over and over throughout the mm-hmm. song. It's it's arty. It is, but is it good, Britt? I oh, look, there were two songs off that album that I would possibly choose to listen to again, and Enormous Wings wasn't one of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the next couple of songs are really skippable and and sleepers for me. Um, I have to admit, Judd, like. I had a hard time finding this album online, as as you know, so you had to send it to me. I had to send it to you, which I want to ask, Britt, how did you listen to this album? Because it's not on Spotify. I found all of the tracks on YouTube individually by searching mm. for them. Oh, there you go. And I created a Google Doc with all of them in there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I did. It, it wasn't easy to find, and I didn't know that when I suggested these albums. I, I think it's always a sign that an album is probably not worth listening to when it's not available on any streaming service. Yes, exactly. You know, it's okay for it to maybe not be on Spotify, but when it's not anywhere except for some weird French one that I'd never heard of before and I had to Google what is this and it was a weird French streaming service. Britt, you have a great point there because when Judd sent this over to me, I was like, what the hell am I going to download on my computer right now? And and then I had to <laughs> yeah. download a program to open up the MP3s. And at that point, I was like, <laughs> I mean, am I in 1996 trying to listen to music illegally? So I was, it just put me in a really, in a shit mood. And then I tried to listen to this album in the first, you know, four songs. I'm kind of like, oh, what the fuck is going on? You know, it's like enormous wings is this guy an angel and and all the and all that by the time i get to falling i'm like i'm I'm falling asleep on this album but i mean there are some tracks that that do pick up and yeah enormous wings i was just Speaking kind of, of like falling i mean we've, we gotta give falling some credit though mick fleetwood on the drums yeah but you don't listen to something just for the drummer i mean no, you I... listen to it for everything it's it's oh yeah it's it's like no honestly falling it's a fine song i like falling to me falling sounds very familiar it's Sounds like it belongs on the soundtrack to a 90s rom-com or an episode of Dawson's Creek or even Gilmore Girls. It sounds a lot like Sam Phillips, who writes all of the like, who wrote all of the strummy la la music that you heard throughout Gilmore Girls. That's what that song sounds like. It's written by Charlotte Caffey from the Go Go's. You know, it's not a song that I'd seek out individually, but I think it has its place. It's interesting because I'd say both of these albums sound very 90s, even though, you know, like Jagged Little Pill came out the year before this, um, and Shania Twain is releasing an album soon around this, this time period. 
It sounds very 90s. I was disappointed that it didn't sound more 80s. I was like, oh, Susanna Hoffs. Well, she was in the bangles. So maybe it's like she's going to bring some of that influence. There's mm-hmm. going to be a bit of Manic Monday in this. There's going to be some walk like an Egypt. Nothing. This is so by the numbers 1996. I was disappointed. I thought like, use a synthesizer for God's sakes. Do something. Even on the Wikipedia article, citation needed, by the way, it says, although this album was received well critically, it flopped commercially, blah, blah, blah. I couldn't find a single positive review, by the way, of this album. The 1996 November 12th review in Variety said, quote, while her million-dollar voice and coquettish look remain intact, they're paired with a $1.98's worth of new material and presentation. Mm. That is so harsh, by the way. But I don't think anyone received this very well at all. It's so... Oh, this album. Yeah, do you think she would have done better if she would have done more of like a pop album? Like a 90s yeah, pop album? Cause, 100%. Because I was listening to this and then like, like I was saying, her voice is awesome. And like that reviewer said, he's on point. Her voice is intact. And then when we get further down, there's a, there's a track like Darling One. I thought her voice was really amazing. But the track is all... Is really stripped back. I, I'd rather just hear her do like a, a pop album, honestly. I mean, she already has that element from back in the day. Why don't you just, you know, update it for an, an, with the 90s sounds and just um, rock it in that way instead of doing this um, Seattle coffee shop sad music that no one cares about. You know what I mean? And it's all the same. There's The tone of the album is just it's just on on cruise control. You know, it's just just going down at 50 miles per hour where at least Cheryl's album has some variety and, you know, subject matter. I mean, she's, you know, whispering in one one song and then she's belting out another uh, uh, in, in a rock track and another in another song. So, um, yeah, I would, have, I would have preferred to hear uh, Susanna just doing a straight up like pop album. The, the big banger, uh, if we move forward to If It Makes You Happy. Cheryl Crow, it's a, it's straight fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you think of the quote-unquote big hit uh, for this album, If It Makes You Happy? I feel like it was ruined by that ad for St. George. Oh, did you get did you get ruined? Like, it's like how Snoop Dogg has been ruined by Menu Log. Um, it has been ruined by St. George commercials. St. George has more satisfied customers than the four major banks in this country. Why? Because they're good with people. Like, I always thought If It Makes You Happy was about getting stoned, right? Yeah, like, from researching the song, it turns out it's actually not about that, but I thought that was the whole point of the song. If it, You know, I get, I still get stoned, I'm not the kind of girl you take home, but if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. I thought that was referencing the drugs. Mm. It doesn't appear that that's actually the case <laughs> from everything she said about this song online, which is very interesting because I would just hear it on these bank ads and be like, why are they using a song about weed to advertise a savings account? Has she ever came out and said what what the song's um, subject matter was specifically about? She said, quote, the inspiration for the song was her feelings after the massive success of her first album as her record label and the media put pressure on her to follow it up. Mm. Maybe, maybe, I guess. Um, she co-wrote it with Jeff Trott again, who is all over both of these albums like a bad habit. And it was originally like a country song and it wasn't quite yeah. working. So they did like a soul version and then that didn't really work. And now it's this rocky arrangement. Yeah, sort of inspired by Tom Petty. It's 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 good. It's a good song. It is a good song. It would have been interesting to hear the other versions. But I read in one of the one of the articles he was saying when you hear it, the hit and when you hear it, you just know it. And that's why they decided to move forward with this um uh, version, but even as a youngster, I I always liked the hook because I always thought it was very philosophical and very Conf- Conf- Confucius like. Really, you know what I mean? Like 
It's like, yeah, it does make me happy. So why am I still fucking sad? <laughs> why can't I just enjoy it? That's where you get most of your life philosophy from. You get it from Sheryl Crow albums Ex- in the mid-90s. Exactly, and I continue to uh, live by that <laughs> philosophy. <laughs> the holy church of mum rock? Ex- exactly. We're going to take a pause for the cause. We'll be back after this break. What's up guys, it's Ruby here. You can check out my brand new single Spell along with all my other tracks right now on Spotify or wherever you get your music. Welcome back to When Albums Collide. We're joined by Britt Aylin of The Chain Podcast to talk one of her uh, childhood favourite albums, Sheryl Crow's self-titled second album, and Susanna Hoff's self-titled album. It came out on the exact same day in 1996. She backs it up. Sheryl Crow backs up her massive chart-topping hit with a song called Redemption Day, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. And this was written after a visit to war-damaged Bosnia when she went with comedian Sinbad and First Lady Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Dude, that is the most 90s thing ever. <laughs> we went to uh, survey the conflict in Bosnia which, uh, with Hillary and Sinbad. What is going on? This is Sinbad and I, bonding. <laughs> I don't actually know where that was, but... Standing in front of an Apache, and like I said, we were we were escorted by an Apache helicopter everywhere we went. Yeah, why doesn't this happen anymore, guys? Like, why isn't Melania taking Cardi B to Aleppo for uh, a visit with the troops? Why does this never happen anymore? It should happen more often, right? <laughs> it definitely should. I want to see the speech she makes to the troops of how to, you know, keep your chin up, keep fighting. Now here's WAP Yeah, or exactly. Um, I want to know, who is the modern day equivalent of Sinbad? It'd be like a YouTube star, like a, a famous YouTuber or, or TikToker or something. Like the most famous TikToker would go along and say hello to the troops. Oh, I know. I have I have it in my mind. What's this freaking guy's name? He's in all the, he's a, he's like a, fuck it. I can't remember. It doesn't matter. But yeah, exactly. Redemption Day. What do we think? Did it touch you? Uh, did it make you think of the troops? Did it make you stand up and salute? Uh, the flag. What do we think about Redemption Day? It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you got to give me at least something. Give me a bit of juice for it. Actually, like, I loved this album. I listened to this album so many times. I don't remember Redemption Day. Do you Do you think maybe it's just you're you're a different person now to how you were? And I mean, obviously you've grown up, but no, nothing. You it didn't move you at all. It gave me it gave me nothing. But also, I just. It fascinates me that I could know this album so well. I could remember the licks going into Sweet Rosalind. I could remember all of these little details, but I had no recollection of this song at all. And I don't know if maybe I used to just skip it constantly. Mm, very likely. Yeah, I mean, this is, I can yeah. understand why you would skip it when, you, when you're a teenager, because this is when the album starts getting a little preachy um the next couple of songs have a have, a, have messages yeah you know? it's a bit political yeah and um i mean i like the country vibe to the track um i also like how the track is stripped down unlike you know some of the other previous previous songs i think it's the second verse where she goes really in 
And it's almost on the nose when she says, you know, fire rages in the streets and swallows everything it meets. It's just an image often seen on television. Come leaders, come you men of gray. Let us hear you pontificate. So that's what I mean. It's it's just really on the nose, especially compared to the previous tracks where the subject matter is kind of abstract. Right. You know, you kind of like, okay, what is this about? And things like that. Um, Whereas this is just basically just in your face. And this is how she feels because she's got the privilege of going overseas and and seeing this uh, ravage uh, land uh, by conflict. This is going to sound mean. Okay. So block your ears (laughs) if you don't want to hear it. She's a 34 year old grown ass woman at this point. Yeah. And the things she's singing about are so, like, toothless and so boring. All right, so we talk about she gets a little bit political. Let's skip forward to the quote-unquote political song, the Walmart song, yeah. uh, Love is a Good Thing. Even that title of that fucking song, Dude. Love is a Good Thing. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, no shit. Wow. <laughs> the song is famous for criticizing Walmart um, because Walmart sold, you know, automatic weapons and guns and Sister, stuff. Watch And so as a result of this lyric that criticized Walmart, they made the decision to pull the album off their shelves, which apparently resulted in a projected 400,000 uh, album sales not occurring because Walmart didn't stock it. And it ended up selling 3 million copies worldwide, whatever, so she probably doesn't care. That's the big political, that's the big furor, that's the political statement, like guns shouldn't be sold at supermarkets. That's that's the statement we're going to go with. That's the, that's the like punk statement you're going to mm. make. It's so vanilla and so white bread it i just it does my head in and i'm gonna keep bringing her up because she it's a great album but jack a little pill came out the previous year and a 17 year old alanis morissette is going off on like patriarchy and all this like you know she's raging against the machine and the best you can do is love is a good thing come on Britt, what did you think of the walmart song oh you liked it didn't you i did like it i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> I like the mum rock. I like the vague political statements. Same like in Hard to Make a Stand, where she very, very subtly references abortion. I enjoy that. She just grazes abortion. She barely touches it. Yeah, you almost need someone to say, hey, did you notice that abortion reference? (laughs) (laughs) Like, Like, I'm not saying the song is bad. It's just the messaging is a little bit weak for me. It's a weak cup of tea for me. Look, I, I wouldn't be playing it at the start of my revolution. It's not going to be the power behind my big political campaign to change the world. She's not going to headline at Dark Mofo anytime soon. It's not a bad message. No, it's not It's not bad. No, that's thing. it's such a fine message that it's almost an obvious message. Mm. Love actually is a good thing, yes. Yeah, definitely. Like you said, the title is just, it's just like, oh, yeah, love is a good thing. Oh, well, of course, of course it is. I don't know. I mean, in regards to the song, as a red-blooded American, I am just so offended that she would make a song against guns. I just think that every child (laughs) in America should at least have one pistol (laughs) in their hands at all times, you know? So, no, I mean, I think the subject matter has been done better by other artists. You know, Eminem did a song called Darkness where he comments on 
the Las Vegas shooter. It's a very anti-gun message. So, um, yeah, this was my least favorite song on the album. I just thought it really this is the least favorite because this is like quite a hit as well, right? Nah, I don't know, man. I just I like I said, it's just those elements of it. I just thought like the title "Love" is a good thing. Okay, all right, whatever. But also the subject matter itself, it's just kind of um, low hanging fruit. Um, so it's that. Speaking of low hanging fruit, I did find the updated version of Sinbad. His name is King Bach. I don't know if you guys know King Bach. No, I'm not 13 years no. old. So. <laughs> Any 13 year old listening, they know where I'm where I'm getting at. So no, let's go. Just go back to talking about Susanna Hoffs with "Darling One," "King of Tragedy." It's just like the, this run of songs. And as I was saying before, "King of Tragedy." It's I thought it was a fun song. Driving beat, drumming is on point. For some reason, I just got the impression listening to the Bangles like this. I thought this album would be more fun, mm-hmm. and it's one of the least fun. It's like it's not fun at all. It's all quite weepy or 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 something. And then I thought, well, isn't she in a really happy period in her life? As I mentioned, she just had a baby. Like she should be over that. She be like chirping, you know. She's a successful musician. We don't even get a reference to her family until the next track, "Eyes of a Baby," but. All throughout this, I was just like, where's the fun? Where's the fun song going to kick in? And I don't think it ever does. Mm. I think the closest thing to a fun song probably is King of Tragedy with that bluesy piano line running through it, maybe. Maybe, (laughs) but um, did you guys have anything for these songs? The one thing I did sort of note about King of Tragedy and some of the other songs on the Susanna Hoffs album, which another tie into Sheryl Crow is this weird need to reference celebrity culture. King of Tragedy lists Gwyneth Paltrow and Kathy Lee in like the first line of the song. Look, I, I didn't quite understand it, but I thought it was an interesting thing that happened across both albums because Sheryl Crow name drops all the time. Yeah, she does. Did you, But she didn't have a song where she talks about John Lennon getting shot. Mm. <laughs> well, she did mention John Lennon in the She Angels, did. Right? She did, though. It was just... <laughs> I, it was so so bizarre, but the yeah the the song where she where she talks about John Lennon getting shot, weak with love, I believe it's yeah. called. Yeah. Her brother comes up to her in the driveway, and he's like, "Oh, something bad happened, but I don't want to tell you." And then it's it just talks about John Lennon being murdered. What what relevance does that have to to anything? I don't. What a, what a weird song to put in your album. I mean, it happened a while ago. It's not like it was topical. You know, it happened 16 years, you know, <laughs> pre prior to you releasing this album. I thought, like, I can understand if it was like a really, it was your hero or something, or but we don't get any of that in the song. She doesn't say, like, I looked up to him or his music changed my life. It's just, it's just a recounting of the events. Bizarre song. Awful song. Bizarre, but awful song. Do you think she's like reaching out to boomers at that point? Because in the same sense, I I listened to that song and I was like, I don't know. I just don't get it. I know John Lennon was a massive inspiration to people and stuff. Iconic and all these things. But I couldn't think of um, a musician slash celebrity that would die tomorrow. And I'm going to be, you know, heartbroken about like I'm a massive Kanye West song, uh, Kanye West uh, 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 fan, but. I'm not staying home and writing poetry if he, uh, you know, if he gets an aneurysm tomorrow. I think because the Beatles were such a big influence, as you said, so maybe she felt a certain kinship. But, you know, we're, we're not talking as if this album was really successful. It was a flop. Mm. So it was obviously a, probably a mistake to put that song mm. in. But the references are musical as well, because back to the Sheryl Crow album, a couple songs coming up right here. Hard to Make a Stand, a.k.a. the abortion song. The chorus sounds a lot like Ruby Tuesday by the Rolling Stone. Oh, it really does. And he says,
And then she has another song, the next song, Every Day is a Winding Road, where it opens up with these, like, bongos or congas or something, and I'm like, yeah, this sounds a lot like Sympathy for the Devil by the Rolling Stones. Back to back, this sounded very similar to some Rolling Stones songs. Oh, yeah, the influence was right there. Signposted right out the front. <laughs> By the way, bongos are the worst thing to ever happen to music, just quite personally. <laughs> like, there have been, in the recorded human history, there have been about four good songs that have included bongos. So I'm obviously not going to like this song. <laughs> so you don't like Sympathy for the Devil? No, that's one of the four. Okay. What's one of the four good songs with bongos? You can, listener, you can guess the other three. Every Day is a Winding Road, apparently, allegedly inspired by Paul Hester of Crowded House, uh, when Paul Hester left Crowded House, he was sick of touring. He told the lead singer, Neil Finn, every day is a winding road, mate, and it's time for me to veer off. And so he, he quit the group. And wouldn't you know it, Neil Finn is actually on this track, uh, providing backup vocals. Providing the most boring, boring vocal <laughs> harmonies. This really flat, dreary vocal line. You've got Neil Finn on your song. I mean, he's got such a beautiful voice. I saw him with Fleetwood Mac last year and oh, it was amazing. I don't even have words to describe how amazing it was to see Neil Finn combined with Fleetwood Mac. That was a super group for the ages. But yeah, imagine getting Neil Finn on your song and going, yeah, I basically need you to sing one note for this for this chorus. And I'm going to sort of nudge my lyrics in the direction of abortion, but never, you know, outright mention it. Are you okay with that, Neil? Cool, cool. All right, let's start and record. It's such, it's a good song though. I, I enjoy Every Day is a Winding Road. That is a song I would play, crank it up, windows down, picking the kids up from school. I don't have kids, but I'll pick up someone else's kids. <laughs> it's Friday night. Um, you're, you're pouring yourself a glass of wine. You're, you're putting up a, a song. Is Cheryl Crow music you'd, like, put on to, to turn up, or is it more mellow Sunday Arvo music? Probably more of a mellow Sunday Arvo, you know, gonna sit down, have a beer in the sunshine, chuck this on in the background. Like a, like a Starbucks or a Gloria Jeans or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, your analogies are bang on. Yeah, I think maybe... Well, no, except... Because we're also describing Susanna Hoffs as the boring coffee shop music. Because I wouldn't reach for that album, but I would still reach for Cheryl Crow. Like, I know I've said that some of these songs are just okay. You'd dry reach for it, maybe. <laughs> but. <laughs> but, like, you know, if I had this album on vinyl, it would get played. Su- Susanna Hoffs, we'll just finish, we'll just finish these up. <laughs> songs like Grand Adventure, like Happy Place, like These Days Are Over, these are, these are penned and composed by David Beowald, who wrote, uh, helped write Sheryl Crow's first album, Tuesday Night Music Club. Um, and he's not doing his best work here, I'll say that, because I could tell you literally nothing about these songs. And again, like you, I listened to it three times, this album, mm-hmm. over the course of the week. Grand Adventure, Happy Place, Those Days Are Over, What Do You Got For Me? Help Me. Give me a little bit of, a little bit of sustenance here. I am hearing the Tuesday Night Music Club influences. The more I, once I had that fact... And then I took it back to Cheryl Crow's first album and I was hearing the instrumentation and I was hearing the styles that they've brought to Susanna Hoff's album. And it made me realise that the star factor for Cheryl Crow is entirely Cheryl Crow. <laughs> you know, these guys may have been annoyed that she didn't credit them enough, but I don't know if they were deserving of the credit because you see what they do without her and it's this. You probably would have had another hit, guys, if you were, <laughs> if you were really that good. This is the point in the album where I feel it was getting a little bit interesting, not a lot, but I mean, the subject matter, at least like it's just something 
something is there, but she doesn't really uh, expound on it. I mean, with, with Grand Adventure, you know, it's a, it, I mean, the story or the subject is about a guy who's a liar, he's a phony, he's a kind of, I guess, this bad boy type of guy that she's really excited about. Hence, dating him or being with him is this grand adventure. But I just, I just didn't feel it. There's just, like I said, this whole album has just one tone and it's just cruise control, snooze level the whole time. And it continues with this song. And then even with Happy Place, I mean, it's too slow of a song. Like at this time, at this point, I'm just, I'm just drifting off into La La Land. Well, I got the sense that it was about depression, right? And everyone's was telling the singer or her herself just like oh just go to your happy place and it's and and particularly um nowadays what we know of mental health and things like that you know it's very um the best it's just very insensitive just to tell somebody oh you just need to buck up like oh you're you're down on your luck you're depressed you're not feeling good well you know just you need to go to your happy place you need to buck up you need to feel better you know just smile more just smile you know it takes it takes more muscles to frown than it does to smile and you look prettier (laughs) when you smile so just smile more it's so yeah yeah and and, you know like i said it was an interesting subject but it's just nothing's really done with it and then the next one is Weak With Love. Well, I just fucking laughed at that song all the way through, you know, <laughs> because I thought it was just so... Because I'm listening to it and it's like, okay, somebody died and Jesse comes into the room and John Lennon's dead. And I was like, bro, like, I don't know. Like, I, maybe I, I, maybe because I wasn't... I didn't grow up with John Lennon or something like that. But also, you know, like, you didn't know John Lennon, so it's just like a celebrity, yeah, you know? Exactly. Like, yeah, exactly. Just... Should we talk about the other thing that Susanna Hoffs was doing throughout the 90s when she wasn't working on this album? Which was? Ming-T. Oh, you mean Ming-T, the parody band from Austin Powers. Uh, oh, which yeah. they created in the early 90s. And Susanna Hoffs came up with Gillian Shagwell and Mike Myers created Austin Powers, which was the inspiration behind the Austin Powers films. The, their band came first. Obviously, that very fun. You listen to their song uh, BBC, very fun. It's like oh, like a bit punky. It's almost like a parody of Britpop, but it's awesome. Put on the telly. Why couldn't she just do that for an album? Right. Why did she have to subject us to this? Well, that's the question. Because, I mean, Austin Powers was also directed by Susanna Hoffs' husband. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But, like, that uh, Jay Roach. film came out in 97, which means they would have been writing BBC at the t- same time that she was writing this album. They would have been working on this really fun, silly project, which just is so much better. I just, uh, I, don't, I don't get it. And then she finishes it off. This 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 album is supposed to chart her growth as an artist. And what does any true artist do? They finish the album with two covers because that's what artists mm. do. She does, you know, Stuck in the Middle with You and To So With Love. They're nice. They're actually like nice little twists on it. But Susanna, why don't you just do music that you wrote that you want to express yourself? You don't have to copy like other people. I just, oh, I didn't get it. It did my head in. And all I want was a cover as well. So that's three tracks off the album that she's had no creative input. Or, you know, she didn't write at all. I was going to, because her previous album didn't do so well. Is this like a self-conscious thing? Like she's like, oh, maybe I need, maybe I need something that people will recognize. Because she did covers on that album too. She's like a David Bowie cover on the the previous album. Is, is she self-conscious about her songwriting or what? what is it? I think she really likes covers because then she went on to release like three albums worth of <laughs> yeah. covers. She just realized that doing her own original stuff without 
you know, the Peterson sisters from the Bangles just wasn't worth her while. And Cheryl Crow, finishing up her album just quickly, she has three more songs with uh, Jeff Trott. He's all over this album, and like Omarie, Superstar, and The Book, and then a final track, Ordinary Morning, just by herself. Anything jumping out to you? Did you did you really love any of these songs, Britt? Did you really hate any of these songs? Because uh, I thought this finish to the album was quite weak and tepid. It was clearly one of those front-loaded albums. You know, they put the dodgier tracks towards the end because they <laughs> figure that people have turned it off by then or at least have sort of decided whether or not they love the album before they get to the book. <laughs> Omarie's... Yeah, it's fine. I quite like Superstar, but the book and Ordinary Morning are ordinary. I mean, I would like I would say I did like Oh Marie. I thought it was a good song. Um, it's interesting, uh, the concept. I mean, it goes to the thing of, you know, it's this promiscuous girl sleeping around. I mean, even Cheryl sounds envious of her. Turns out this girl Marie is sleeping around because she's emotionally hurt. And I guess that's the the lesson to be learned there. Just in that song particularly, I just thought that she sounded really whiny in in the in the song. So I don't know if everyone picked that up or if um you guys just was like, oh yeah, we tuned out by this point. But the superstar and then particularly the book, I just I I was I I checked out at that point. The book was almost unlistenable for me. I will say, ordinary morning. I was typing in that I was I hated it, and it actually wasn't that bad. It, like the album is overly long, but I thought ordinary morning. It's another Cheryl Crow penned original, just her, which I love. They're my favorite tracks on the album. She has this nice sensual husky verse, and then a big powerful shouty chorus. This is like it's the thirteenth and last track on the album, and I was like, this is the first track I've really felt where Cheryl Crow is stretching her vocals and showing off what she can do. I thought it was a shame she didn't do this for more of the album. Mm. Let's take it to the breakdown. Brit, these albums came out at exactly the same time, same day, same city, a lot of the same guitarists, a lot of the same writing stuff. Why was Sheryl Crow's album hugely successful, selling millions of copies, and why is it impossible to even find Susanna's? <laughs> almost like she's it's a dirty little secret she's ashamed of and has ripped it off every streaming service, her self-titled album. What was the difference, you think? Well, I think Pedro hit the nail on the head by saying that it's the variety on the Sheryl Crow album. On Susanna Hoff's album, everything sort of blends into one another. There are maybe three or four... Uh, maybe three songs <laughs> that sort of stand out as being different. But the rest, you know, we've listened to that album several times now and I could start one of those songs halfway through and I bet you wouldn't be able to pick which one it was because they sort of all bleed into one another. There's nothing individual about any of them. Mm. Whereas with Cheryl Crow, if I go halfway through, if it makes you happy, you know what song it is. Mm-hmm. You're probably going to belt along with the chorus. It's catchy. It's good fun. And there's nothing wrong with a bit of mum rock. Mm. I'll chuck this on after Melissa Etheridge before Alanis Morissette and I will have a great day. The songs I like the most, is you're right, is of her being independent and doing her own thing and her own personal songs that she wrote alone without the influence of Jeff Trott or, or David Beowald or whatever. They're so unique in the way they sound compared to the rest of the album. I, so I, I totally get it. Like I understand 
I wish I wish that Susanna had written a song by herself mm. just to show her what she got. I didn't feel any any personality out of that album. I think yeah, with Cheryl Crow's album, I think mm, yeah, it's just it's that. I mean, it's a massive song that came out of that out of that out of that album, and there's just um, more variety to it. I mean, even the subject matter is, is, is it's a lot more interesting compared to Susanna's album. Excuse me. I mean, Susanna's album is just like I said, it's on cruise control the whole way through and it's just disappointing especially coming from uh um i mean i would say she's a legit star especially right i mean at this at this point people know who she is and she's from the Bengals, so she has to have some um fans that would come from that group to check out that's you would you would think like wouldn't you think that at least it would go gold or, or something or we could find it or it would have a fan yeah. base because, I mean, we've covered, I don't know if you know, Britt, we've covered some real fucking stinkers yeah, on this podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but they all have such rabid fan bases. Even, you know, Shaquille O'Neal's album and and Vanilla Ice's yeah. album and Paula Abdul's album. They have people that love them. I, no one talks about Susanna Is Hoff. it because no one really knows who she is? Like, if you said, if, hey, Susanna Hoffs is in, in the shopping center, right? And, and compare, like, oh, the Bengals are in the shopping center, or Cheryl Crow's in this, you, you, you probably think differently. So, yeah, I don't know. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a strange thing. But, you know, Britt, you're right. There is nothing wrong with mom rock. It also falls on you to choose a song from each album that you believe either embodies the album or that you just really liked. Um, if that's going to be a struggle for you, I am sorry, but please choose a song from both albums. So Teenage Brit from the Cheryl Crow album loved Sweet Rosalind. That was, that was my favorite song off that album. I thought it was so edgy and so cool. Looking back, probably Every Day is a Winding Road Mm. is what I'd pick now. That is the song that I would you know, blast from my car with the windows down while doing the school run. From the station wagon? Yeah, the soccer mum station wagon, the people mover. Got to pick up the kids, got to get them to swimming. And I'll be singing Every Day is a Winding Road, singing along with Neil Finn. Absolutely, one note all the way through. What about <laughs> Susanna Hoffs? Uh, I've got to go for Falling because that was the song that stood out to me not because it was a good song, but because it sounded familiar. And I don't know if I maybe have heard it on a soundtrack somewhere. Probably not, because you cannot find anything from this <laughs> album anywhere. But it sounds like something I would have heard in TV, in film. It sounded sort of comforting in that way. And I do love the idea of a member of the Bangles teaming up with a member of the Go-Go's to write a song together. That's like 80s female rock royalty working together right there that's cool not sure why that's the song that came out of that (laughs) collaboration but there you go pedro what do you got for me uh yeah off uh off of cheryl crow's album i think i'm going to um i think i'm going to do home like like i was saying with uh, a lot of the songs on the album they have interesting subject matters um with this one particularly you know she's just talking about her disappointment of settling down with this guy and there's the elements of country music that um i do enjoy and it bit of what she's doing now i think she's might be just concentrating mostly on on country music and i love to hear her when she does her thing in that genre so uh, i'm going to choose choose home um and then off of susanna's album I just said Susanna, Susanna, excuse me. You know, my Latin came out there. <laughs> I'm going to do uh, 
darling one. I just thought her voice sounded amazing on this track. It was really stripped back. Yeah, her voice sounded really, really good. I think that everyone should go out and listen to that. Look, um, for Susanna Hoff's Beekeeper's Blues, <laughs> it is a dire song that brings to mind a bargain bin pop rock CD somewhere buried that they play at Starbucks. Um, but if you like that song, you're in luck because the rest of the album is equally that flavor. If that's your flavor, you're, you're in luck. As for the Sheryl Crow album, I really like the, the ending, actually. Ordinary Morning showed her vocal credentials. It's a song written solely by herself. She doesn't have to give anyone else credit. And uh, I enjoyed that, that flavor of it. Um, thank goodness I will probably never listen to the, either of these albums ever again. Before we go, though, Brett, can you please tell us about your wonderful podcast that I love? Listen to every episode. It's called The Chain, uh, and you've covered some really awesome topics. Dee Snyder in front of the U.S. Senate, which we've talked about, uh, oh, Pedro. Yeah. But uh, also lots of, lots of different fun things uh, that are all linked. Tell us about your podcast. So the idea behind The Chain is it's creating this chain of songs that are linked together by all different things. So it started with The Chain by Fleetwood Mac, which I then linked to Rage Against the Machine's Killing in the Name because they were both subject of Facebook chart campaigns to try and get these songs to chart years and years after their original releases. And then I've just gone through and linked found very unlikely links and unlikely songs to link together. So from Killing in the Name, I went to Dear Prudence by the Beatles and I've linked an Arctic Monkeys song to a Blondie song through this like thousand-year-old invention. Um, And, yeah, finding links between Twisted Sister and John Denver and it's, it's an interesting exploration into the different things that songs can have in common and it's a really good excuse for me to just research music, which is my favorite thing to do. That's why I've loved being a guest here with you guys on When Albums Collide. This researching these albums and finding the links between them has been really fun, even if, you know, some of the music wasn't so great. <laughs> So where can people find you uh, online, et cetera, et cetera? All right. So I'm available everywhere at Brit Allen. If you search my name, I am literally the only person named Brit Allen in the world. If you search me, you find me. Um, the Chain is everywhere at The Chain Pod or at thechainpod.com. I mean, if you're in Hobart, you can probably just find me walking down Elizabeth Street at some point most days. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Uh, thanks so much for being a guest, uh, and we'll have to do it again sometime. Uh, I'll see you next week, Pedro. See ya, bud. Take it easy. Bye. <laughs>